Grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 22. This is our last week with Abraham. We spent uh, three weeks so far with him hearing about his life, his calling. And each week he is facing test after test. Uh, If you remember two weeks ago, he faced the test of the famine and he went down into Egypt and, well, that didn't go so well. And and last week the sermon was on the test of waiting. And uh, hey, if you missed that sermon... I mean, put it in the top ten of messages preached at this church that you have to hear. When God says, wait, and if you're waiting for Him to do anything in your life and you've been waiting, make sure you check that sermon out online. But this morning is really the test of all tests. This is the greatest test Abraham faces in his life. Frankly, next to the cross, this is the greatest test anyone faces in in the Bible. I mean, Daniel in the lion's den is like kindergarten, okay, compared to this test. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay, third grade. You know, with the whole furnace and all. Okay, third grade compared to this test. So get ready. And in preparation for this, I looked up online. I I typed in world's toughest tests. I wonder what they are. So uh, I pulled up a list, uh, according to the internet, for what it's worth, of the hardest tests that you could take on the entire earth. And you'd be surprised what tests make the list. Uh, First listed is the CPA, the Certified Public accountant test. They say that slightly less than 40% of those that take this test actually pass it for the, for the first time. How'd you like that stat going into it? 6 in 10, F! And then 4 in 10, maybe you pass and we'll see what your grade is. One of the hardest tests on the planet. Second would be the SAT, the old scholastic aptitude test. And they say a mere point zero 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 two percent of students ever ace this exam. Wow. Uh, third on the list is called the Oxford Prize Fellowship Exam. Okay, so you made it to Oxford. Congratulations. But while you're there, you could take a test to get into a school that's in Oxford, uh, kind of an elite school. And this test consists of many parts. But get this, the final and most challenging section is an essay. Students are given a single word for inspiration, and they have to write a three-hour-long essay on that single word. And if your essay is good enough and thoughtful enough and coherent enough, you will be welcomed into this elite school within a school. Fourth on the list is the California bar exam. They say that passing this test, only about 48% who take it, pass it. Fifth on the list is the United States medical licensing exam. You want to be a doctor, you got to pass this to practice medicine in the United States, and only those who truly know medicine will survive. Well, Some of these tests are not academic. Also listed here on the list is the uh, NFL Combine test. College students take each year to try and get into the NFL. It's a grueling test made up of a 40-yard dash, 225-pound bench press. That would do me in. Uh, Vertical jump, broad jump, three-cone drill, and the shuttle run. Uh, Passing this test requires a combination of monstrous strength and stealthy agility. And the last test to make the list may surprise you. It is the field sobriety test. (laughs) Hardest test to pass if you've been breaking the law, but hey, if you are a sober citizen, it's a piece of cake. Hardest test to pass, and if you fail it, consequences are severe, you end up behind bars. Well, I want you to think about testing this morning. Uh, The title of the message is Testing 123. Because there are three lessons of faith we are going to learn from this test in Abraham's life. In fact, to help you feel more like you're in a testing setting, why don't you reach down? To, you, some of you have that little desk thing next to your seat. 
the benefit of being a Chicago Christian. Why don't you just lift that up and fold it over and pretend like, like you're taking a test this morning. You can identify with Abraham and feel like it's test day. Maybe that can help you out. In your Bibles of Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, we're traveling 4,000 years back in time. How about that? You didn't even feel the building move, did you? 4,000 years back in time, 2000 B.C. And this date has been a long time coming. You see, God had prepared for this moment in Abraham's life uh, over the course of decades. But let's get there and see what happened. Genesis 22, verse 1. It says, After these things... God, what's the word there? Test it. People on that side of the room nailed it. Let's try that once more. After these things, God, good job. Abraham and said to him, Abraham. He said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Okay. Now this is one of those moments in Scripture where you read this, and then you shake your head and you say, what did that just say? After these things, well, what things are we after now? Well, you see, God had appeared to Abraham when he was 75 and said, you're going to have a baby. You're going to be a daddy. And then God made him wait 25 years so that he didn't become the daddy until he was 100 years old. That's old. He became a daddy, and they waited so long. And finally, they had this little baby, and they were so excited. And after these things, now bound up with this child called Isaac, were all the promises of salvation entering the earth. You see, God promised that through this offspring would come descendants numerous as the sand on the seashore, and that That's the promise that the nation of Israel would be formed. But there was an offspring singular who God would talk about. And ultimately in the Old Testament it became seen that it would be the Messiah. And therefore it would be from Abraham that salvation would enter the earth. After these things, God did what? God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, I love it that God knows us by name. God knows you by name. And he said, here am I. He said, and the way this is worded is important. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. The tension of this test can be seen in three observations. You can jot this down in your notes. The tension of this test. First, how could Abraham do this? This is his son, his only son. He had another son, Ishmael, but this was his only son with, with naturally born with his wife. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. and It's almost intentionally worded to draw out the relationship of father to son. How could Abraham do this? And listen, I don't want to shield you from the reality of what God just asked Abraham to do. He said, offer him as a burnt offering. Listen, Abraham had to take his son and put him on a pile of wood. Then he had to slit his throat and set the body on fire. That's what God asked him to do. Wow. How could Abraham do this? 
But there's more tension that builds. How could God ask this? That's the second tension. In the, how could God ask this? This is clearly against God's moral law. This is clearly an offense to God's character. How could He ask this? Not to mention that the promises and the hope of salvation are bound up in this child. We find ourselves saying, how could God even ask this? And third, how will God keep His promises? Remember, God made a covenant with Abraham. And you remember in the strange, old, this is the way they did things back then, but they wanted to enter into a legal agreement. Abraham cut these animals in half, laid them out, and then Abraham fell asleep. And God, in the form of this smoking fire pot and torch, passed through the pieces of the animal eye to make a covenant with Abraham, which is a promise. And the promise was, I will keep my word about this child I will give you, and all the descendants will come, and the blessing will enter the earth. And why, why is he walking through these animal parts? It's, it's the ancient way of saying, if I don't keep my promise, what happened to these animals will happen to me. In other words, God said, on my life, I will keep my promises. Now God said, take the child bound up all my promises and kill him. So God put Abraham in a dilemma and God put God in a dilemma. No Isaac, no promises. No promises, no more God. I mean, the whole universe is now jeopardized by this test. And Abraham's head is spinning and he's trying to make sense of what on earth God is doing. How could he do this? How could God ask this? How will God keep his promises? The, wow, the tension. Well, let's read what happens. And I'm going to tell the story in its entirety, and then we're going to pull from this story the lessons of faith. Verse 3, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. We're supposed to notice that Abraham obeyed. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Notice Abraham's obedience. It was early in the morning. He made the preparations himself and he got going. What an example of faith. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, catch this, We'll go over there and worship and come again to you. Hey, that's a statement of faith. We will return to you. I and the boy will go and we'll return to you. He, he doesn't know how the promise is going to come together with his obedience, but he's obeying and he's believing at the same time. I don't know how this is all going to happen, but we're coming back. What a statement of faith in the middle of the greatest test of his life. Verse 6. It says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. They went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! He said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Okay, maybe you have kids who are younger and you've noticed that they ain't stupid. Have you noticed that sometimes your kids, they surprise you with the things that they notice? My kids, sometimes I look at them and I'm like, you're too smart. 
We need to take care of that. Just things that they say and things that they notice and things that they hear, you're like, this is... Well, Isaac is looking around like, hey, I see the fire. I got the wood. You got the knife. Where's the animal? Oh, and this is just making it so much harder for Abraham. Now he's got to talk to his child about what's going on. How heartbreaking. And what does he say? It's important what he says. He says in verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. We've got to read carefully here. Okay, some scholars think Abraham was saying, well, God's going to provide a substitute. He kind of thought there'd be an old switch or root. Nope, that's not what it is. If you read the New Testament, that is not at all what Abraham thought would happen. So what's he talking about? God providing a lamb of his choosing. He's veiling what's really going to happen. You see, because God has already selected the offering. He's referring to his son indirectly as the lamb that God has chosen. That's prophetic, and he doesn't even know it. To refer to this son, this child of promise, who's about to be offered up as a sacrifice, and he's referred to as a lamb from God, provided this is all prophetic. His statement of faith, and he doesn't even know it. Reading on. It says in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And here it is. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. What a moment! You have to understand that your hope of salvation is right here hanging in the balance. How on earth will this promised blessing enter in to bless all of the peoples of the earth? Here here it is. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham! Abraham! He said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram and caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. God stopped it. At the very last moment He stopped it, and now we're left thinking, what on earth just happened? Well, there's three lessons of faith that we pull from this, from this whole ordeal. And here's the first one. I'll give it to you, and then we'll unpack it. First is this. Abraham's sacrifice foreshadows God's sacrifice. Jot that down. Abraham's sacrifice foreshadows God's sacrifice. Uh, this is what I would like to call a pre-enactment. I just made this word up. But you can use it if you want. This is a pre-enactment of how salvation would come to the earth. This is a drama acted out for all the world to read about from that time forward. Have you ever been in a drama or a play? Raise your hand up if you're ever in a play in high school or college or your drama. Raise it up high. Don't be ashamed. Now You're extroverts. I was in a play once. It was in my senior English class, and I got to be King Lear. I think I had to wear tights, but there's no video, so don't even look for the blackmail footage. It ain't out there. 
Pastor Mark had this. You hear Pastor Mark? He got to play uh, up in the Pirates of Penzance. He was a pirate, and he got to jump from a platform onto a trampoline and bounce in the air and do a toe touch while holding a sword. <laughs> Pastor Mark for you, huh? You want him to reenact it here one day? That would be fun. Well, draw from the part you played, and now think of this. When God wanted to act out how his promises would be fulfilled and how salvation would enter the earth, he chose Abraham to play the part of God in the pre-enactment. Casted as God is Abraham. How? How? Okay, jot this down. What do we see? We see a father giving up his only son who he loves. Does that sound familiar? How could God ask this of a father? How could he even put a father into this horrifying scenario. Well, well, he wanted you to get the image of a father offering his only son whom he loves because that's what he's going to do. You see that? It's not that God approved of this sacrifice. In fact, blatantly in Jeremiah 32-35, God calls child sacrifice a detestable thing. The only thing that redeems this request is that Abraham's doing something that God himself was going to do. It's a a horrifying reality. And if you think about it even closer, what are we supposed to think about this sacrifice? We're supposed to see it as this bloody, awful, that ends in death, sacrifice. Do you know God had to get the New Testament world ready for what was going to happen to Christ? What happened every time Jesus would say, well, I'm going to die on the cross. Son of man, he's going to die on the cross. What would his disciples say? Never! This will never happen to you. They didn't get that it was going to be a bloody, horrifying, awful sacrifice. They didn't get that. They should have. And what happened every time Jesus said, I'm the Son of God. He's my Father. They were like, stop it. You cannot talk about God as your Father as if you are His Son. You're making yourself equal to God. And yet, 2,000 years before Christ, God was supposed to get us thinking about Father offering His Son very bloody and horrifying sacrifice ending in death. It's going to be awful. But they didn't get the cues. A father giving up his only son. Jot this down. What else do we see? God's son would die in the same region. Die in the same region. Hey, you want God to show off for you? You want him to prove that he has the future in the palm of his hand? How about this? How about he said, go to the land that I will tell you. And the name of the land was Moriah, the region. And and the only other time this name comes up in the Bible is 2 Chronicles 3.1, and it says that Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah. So there is a clear biblical connection made between the region where Abraham was, it's called the region, and the mountain where the temple is built. We at least know Abraham was in the region where Solomon's temple was built. And where is that? The city is called Jerusalem. And where would Jesus die? God said, go to this place, Father, taking your son, offer him up as an awful bloody sacrifice to me. And he was at least in the region, if not in the very spot where the Lord Jesus would die for you. What an amazing pre-enactment of your Messiah. God's son would die in the same region. Third, God's son would be a substitution for me substitution for me. You see, Isaac learned firsthand 
what it meant to have something die in his place. Isaac is freaking out here like, supposed to be a father-son retreat, and why is my father holding up a knife? I wasn't that good last night, I know, but I mean, just give me a time out. What? Isaac is trying, what on earth is going on here? This poor child is traumatic. I mean, DCFS, if you try and put on a play today, you know, with the Abraham story, watch out. Okay, shut us down, because this is like, whew. But what did Isaac learn from this? Isaac learned what it meant to be sentenced to death by God and then to have something sit in your place and be killed for you. Well, that's a lesson for every human on the planet because the wages of sin is what? Is what? Not a timeout, not a spanking, not a little talking to when you get to heaven. Death. And Isaac was under the very judgment of God, and then what happened? Stop, stop, stop. And what happened? God provided a ram in Isaac's place. Therefore, God stopped Abraham short of going all the way that God would go. And God showed Isaac what it meant to have something else die for you. Oh, that's supposed to show you your Savior. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he get the nails pierced through him? Why? He led the, led the perfect life. What's he doing dying? Well, well, he's dying in your place. Well, he's dying for your sin. God's willing to put your sin on him instead of you. It's substitution. We see it 2,000 years before Christ would come. You see how... Abraham's sacrifice foreshadows God's sacrifice. And we're supposed to react strongly. What's going on? This is unheard of. Why is God doing this? And he's like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do for you. And this is what you're going to do to my son. And so the very promises Abraham was trying to figure out how God was going to keep, he was acting out how God would end up keeping them. What a test of faith. Well, that's the first thing we learned from Abraham about faith. Abraham's sacrifice foreshadows God's sacrifice. Here's the second thing. Abraham's faith foreshadows saving faith. Jot that down. Abraham's faith foreshadows saving faith. Ask yourself this. Do you have saving faith by God's definition as found in the Scripture that you will go to heaven? Do you have it? Do you have saving faith? Well, one way you can look at it is hold up Abraham's faith and then hold up yours and see if they match. He's now a role model. Do you have saving faith? Well, how was Abraham's faith saving faith? Well, jot this question down. Do I have faith in God's promise? Do I have faith in God's promise? Abraham reasoned that God would keep his promise. He didn't know how. But when he said, we will come back to you, he was by faith saying God's going to keep his promise. And what you have to have faith in is not just the goodness of humanity or just that God exists. or that what, what do you have to have faith in? Faith in what you heard from the very Word of God. And Abraham has faith in the promise of God. Even when hope seems to be dying at his own hand, he still believes that God will keep his promise. How important is that? Here's the second one. Do I have faith in the resurrection of the dead? This is fascinating. Do I have faith in the resurrection of the dead? How could Abraham do it? How could he honestly have done it? What goes through his mind as he raises the knife up? What goes through his mind? Well, in the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit that knows the hearts of all, we learn that. Check out Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. We'll put it on the screen. It says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is fascinating. This is God showing what he saw in the heart of Abraham. The math Abraham was doing in his head was this. God's got to keep his promise. No Isaac, no promise. So, so I'm, I'm going to do what he said. And the only way for God to make this right is for God to bring him back up from the dead. The content of Abraham's faith, what specifically he was driven to believe through this test, was that God would raise the child of promise from the dead. And you got it easy, right? You're like, well, we all believe that. Yeah, but it had never happened before. In Abraham's Sunday school class, you see, they didn't have the story of Elijah raising up the dead, or Elisha raising up the dead, or Jesus raising up the dead, or Jesus coming back from the dead. It never happened. He had the faith to believe it first as he just looked at what God was demanding and he said the only way this thing's going to end the way God said it would end is if my kid comes back from the dead. I believe it's going to happen. Here I go. Wow. Well, you see, saving faith requires that you believe the death and the burial and the resurrection of the ultimate child of promise, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Abraham believed God was going to bring him back from the dead, and the author of Hebrews says it was so close, it's as if he did get him back from the dead. He was already dead. The knife was on its way down. It's it's like God gave him back his child from the dead. So you have to believe that God raised up his only son whom he loves from the dead to be saved. It's the only way. Hey, do I have faith in God's promise? Do I have faith in the resurrection of the dead? And third, do I believe salvation came through Abraham's offspring? This is big. Our world has a problem believing that the gospel is an exclusive claim and that Jesus is the only way God will save anyone throughout all human history. Would you agree our world has a problem believing that today? Like if you stood up at your job or in your classroom and said, Jesus is the only way anyone's ever getting to heaven. Would they do this? Bravo, bravo. Would they? No! You'd get a textbook thrown at you, right? Do I believe salvation came through Abraham's offspring? Well, you see, Jesus wasn't like God's plan B. He didn't like think, oh boy, I tried all these other ways in the Old Testament and they didn't work. They didn't click. They didn't catch. So I'm going to try this new way. I'm going to send my son. No, check this out. Reading on in 22, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. This is the voice of God here. By myself... I have sworn, declares the Lord. Hey, God already made a covenant and now he's taking an oath by himself. As surely as my existence is, that's as sure as what I'm about to say. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Here's the promise of Israel coming into the earth. And your offspring... Now he's kind of talking about a singular. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. A global promise for the blessing of salvation has just 
been announced. And God swore on himself that he would do it. In other words, God's saying this isn't just a localized provision. This is the way I'm going to save anyone of any nation. It's through the offspring, the Messiah, who will come through your descendants, Israel. You see, the Bible's very clear. Jesus said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And who gets to heaven but through me? No one. No one. One door, one line. And you may feel like, well, that sounds so narrow. That sounds so bigoted. That sounds so harsh and intolerant to think that there would only be one way. Hey, listen, if the Titanic was sinking and God brought up a ship, a giant lifeboat up alongside it, would you say there's only one boat? Where's the other boats? I'm not getting on unless I see other boats here. You'd get on the boat. And you'd thank the Lord that there is even one ship to save you, right? And the fact that the Lord would come alongside us, humanity who rebelled against Him, threw Him on the cross, and would even save any of us is an amazing provision. So let's not get down the road of, well, I want eight ways, or I want ten ways. What's with this only one way thing? Hey, be grateful that God even made a way. And I think today the next generation is learning false things about salvation. I think if I had to make a list of three things that people believe today about salvation that are not true... I'd say this, it's fashionable today to believe in salvation by sincerity. Well, Sarah here maybe doesn't believe what I believe, but she really believes it. And, and because she truly believes it, it's, it's true to her. Um, it's, it's her sincerity that will make her belief leading to salvation. Uh, and that's a false teaching. Okay, Because it doesn't matter just how much you believe something. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And God showed 2000 B.C. He was going to make one way that a blessing would go to all nations. And if you sincerely believe something other than what God has declared, you're sincerely wrong. And it's our responsibility to bring the truth to these people. Next, I would say salvation by a show of hands. Well, look at, look at, look at all of these people who believe this other thing. How can all of these people be wrong? Hold your hand up if you believe this other thing. You see, take account. The show of hands shows that there's so many people believing it. How could it be wrong? But God's not going to do a count of hands on the way into hell. Okay, how many of you believe this other thing other than what I said? Okay, because there's so many of you, I'll let you in. That's foolish. It doesn't matter how many people believe it. If it's out of line with God's revealed word, it's false. I think, third, people believe in salvation by a smushing of all religions together. Well, I can't pick one, so I'm just going to take them all and smush them together. A little from this and a little from that and a little from this, and they all basically teach the same thing anyway, right? So just whoosh. This, this is like the salvation sandwich. If I just take a layer from each religion and put it all together, then there's got to be something in there that's going to give me eternal life. Um, but you see, God made it clear long before Christ walked the earth that He's going to send in the way, the truth, the life. Not ten ways, one way. And it would be through this offspring that the blessing of salvation would be unleashed to all the nations of the earth. It's the only way. And there has to be a crisis moment in your heart where you say, Amen. Believe that Christ is the only way. And then see everyone else in your life as someone who needs the precious truth that God has been revealing for thousands of years. Do I believe salvation came through Abraham's offspring? Do I have faith in the resurrection of the dead? Do I have faith in God's promise? Well, if you do... There should be evidence, which leads us to our third point. First, Abraham's sacrifice foreshadowed God's sacrifice. And you should have gotten that already. Like, wow, God made such an amazing sacrifice. And 
then you should have come to saving faith. And Abraham's faith foreshadows saving faith. And then if you have that, then there should be evidence. So jot this down, number three. Abraham's sacrifice foreshadows actions that verify true faith. Now what Abraham's doing is supposed to resemble what I do after I'm a true believer. And the sacrifice I show to Christ is supposed to prove that I am indeed a sold-out follower of Christ. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, here's the first point. You can jot this down. Will I, will you pass when God tests your faith? Will you pass when God tests your faith? One way God shows that you truly indeed have saving faith is He tests you. It's not that He's learning anything. He's showing forth what's dormant in your heart. I read a funny story a few weeks ago about a student who had a test he really needed to pass. High school student. So he decided to cheat. High school students say that's not a good idea. Where are you at, high school students? Say, not good. Uh, But listen to the title of this article. It says this. Student with 35-foot-long cheat sheet expelled from an exam. You want to see a picture of it? Here's the cheat sheet this kid was using. (laughs) It had 25,000 answers written on it. He wrapped it around his body, and examiners observed that before the test, this guy was fidgeting suspiciously with his clothing. You think? This is so uncomfortable, i got to get this test done. An education authority spokesman said if he had put half as much effort into studying as he did into cheating, he would have sailed through the exam with no problem. Hey, when God tests your faith, and he will, you got to be ready to pass. 1 Chronicles 32.31 is so picturesque of what God does when He tests you. It's up on the screen. It says this. This is talking about King Hezekiah. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, listen, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Hezekiah had just had a miracle done. He was healed and God added 15 years to his life. Not bad, huh? And then God did this. Left him to himself to test him and to see what was in his heart. The test was of pride and and greed. And these envoys from Babylon said, Hey, how popular and amazing are you? And Hezekiah took him all around and showed off all the bling God had given him and just boasted in pride and he failed the test. And God said, Those people you just showed around the kingdom, they're the ones who are going to destroy this land. Way to go. You failed the test. God will do that to you. Where you will sense seasons of intense spiritual opposition, more relational conflict, sins that lie dormant and you had under control for so long suddenly spring to new life and have new strength. What's going on here? What is it? God is momentarily leaving you to yourself to test you to see what's in your heart. Now, of course, Jesus said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you, right? It's not that he's gone. He's relationally putting you into position where you need to call out to him and lean on him and cry out to him like you've never done before. It's called a test. Hey, will you pass when God tests your faith? How will it happen? Well, God may put you in a situation where you don't have enough information, but still you have to act in line with his word. Maybe you don't have enough strength, but still you have to get up another day and simply be faithful. You don't have enough courage, but you have to overcome your fears and simply do it. You don't have enough finances, but you still have to honor Him and you have to not cut corners. 
You don't have enough patience, but you can't blow your top. You don't have enough time, but you still have to get it done. Maybe God puts you across the table from a person who you can't stand and you can't change and you can't get away from and it's a test and this is how He does it. It's then that you have to trust Him because only He can repair your marriage. You have to trust Him because only He can protect your children. You have to trust Him because only He can heal you. You have to trust Him because only He can settle you in and establish you and only He can do it and that's what a test is. Why? What's the point? Well, C.S. Lewis said an amazing thing about the time of testing. He said, God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him or you in situations where you will have to be much braver or more patient or more loving than you ever dreamed of becoming. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that's because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing God intends to make of us. This is the process of God making you into a follower of faith. And don't resent the time of testing. Abraham's sacrifice foreshadows actions that will verify true faith. Hey, will you pass when God tests you? And here's the next and final point. Are you willing to give up even your most treasured possession? Are you willing to give up even your most treasured possession? Abraham held nothing back. Anything God asked, he would put it on the altar. But you see, Abraham's faith grew over time. And in your life and in my life, you see there's these two piles. And over here is the, the pile that's marked God's. And it's everything that we've given over to him and trusted him with and all the amazing stuff he's done. But then over here there's a pile marked mine. Mine. And all your life, God is going to expect you to be picking up one thing after another in the mine pile and bringing it over to the altar and place, just like Isaac, and placing it, giving it up. Because God wants it all under his control and provision. He wants it all. Jesus will ultimately settle for nothing less than everything. And I'm not saying over time God is little by little attaining ownership over parts of your life. Hey, at salvation, he owns you. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You're taking what is his already and by faith moving it into his hands, stepping away and watching him do the miraculous. That's what's going on. And ask yourself, what is it that's in the mind pile that you haven't quite surrendered to the Lord yet? God will ask for what you least feel like giving up in a way that you least expect Him to request when you never thought He would ask so that He can bless you in ways you never imagined. Hey, are you holding on to something for dear life? Is there an attachment that... You're afraid to surrender to Him? Is it ripping you away from the Lord? You've got to put it on the altar. Symbolically, you can think of yourself as putting your watch on the altar and transferring all the use of your time to Him. He gets the best of the first and any demand He wants to make on my schedule now or the months ahead or the years ahead. Lord, You have my future, You have my present, and You have my eternity. I surrender it to You. Imagine yourself taking out a picture of your children and putting it on the altar and saying they're yours. I can't protect them. Only you can. I can't change them. Imagine taking your wedding ring and putting it on the altar and saying this is yours. We made promises to you and only you can help us keep them. 
Imagine yourself taking even your wallet and putting it on the altar and saying, all that I have came from you, all that I have will go back to you, and I trust you to bless what is rightfully yours. Imagine yourself taking your job, your career, whatever you do, and putting it on the table and saying, this belongs to you. Imagine yourself taking the person you're dating, your reputation, anything that can take you from the Lord and putting it on the altar and stepping away and saying yours. And all you have is two empty hands and you say, Father, put anything into these hands you want. Take anything, into these, take anything out of these hands you wish. That's the life of faith. And by testing, the Lord Jesus will drive us to put everything in the God pile. That's what the rest of this life is for. So ask yourself, are you willing to give up even your most treasured possession? Will you pass when God tests your faith? Hey, that's what Abraham's sacrifice is supposed to foreshadow, what true faith really is. And the best way to close out this worship service based on the tremendous sacrifice God offered is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now and we're going to offer you a time of reflection. But listen to what I want you to do in response to this message. Are you listening? As you pray and hold the elements in your hand and reflect on the sacrifice God made for you, firm up in your heart the faith that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. And then, in your life, locate anything that you have not lifted up and put on that altar. Do you know that it can even be you? You could have everything on the altar but you. And the New Testament says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Maybe you need to climb up on the altar. Even my life is in your hands. Whatever it is, I want you to transfer that to the Lord's care on the altar as you reflect on the sacrifice He made.